1: Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 1.17 Agrippina Minor Smite My Womb. Last week, we saw how Agrippina went from being Queen Bee after her son became Emperor to her break from Nero and loss of influence at court. Her allies either deserting her or being removed from positions of power, she was now increasingly vulnerable. Indeed, her son had already made veiled threats against her life. This week, we will see how and why he made good on those threats. But before we get going, I'd like to thank my newest patrons on Patreon, Christina, Anastasia, Shannon, Brigitte, Rebecca and Johanna. Thanks to all you wonderful people, you are all truly amazing. They, along with my longest-standing patrons, have been making their views known on what the next series of The Other half will be about, and while a consensus is developing on the new topic, there is still plenty of time to make your views heard. So, if you'd like to play your part in the future of this podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash podcast and sign up. If you're new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Pina had not had what one might call a quiet life. From the moment that her father had died in suspicious circumstances while she was still a small child, her life had been subject to the shifting moods and personalities in Rome. She had been exiled, ostracised, and caught up in treason plots. She'd lost two husbands, but always managed to survive. Finally, after all of that, she had managed to rise to the top through marrying Emperor Claudius and, with his blessing, had managed to accumulate enormous amounts of power and influence. She had finally risen to the challenge of being the daughter of Germanicus, and ensured the continuance of his line through her giving birth to a son, and then shepherding him to the imperial laurel crown. This was meant to be her crowning glory, but, as we saw last week, her desire to rule with him and through him led to a build-up of resentment in her arrogant teenage son. Resentment that had led to her removal from the palace and stripping, layer by layer, of the pillars of support that had held her in power for so long. But even despite all of this, Agrippina was still a formidable player. She was the daughter of Germanicus, descendant of Augustus and Livia, and survivor of countless crises. She was weakened, but far from finished off. For the moment, Nero and his advisor's strategy had been to edge her out piecemeal, avoiding direct confrontation. Now, they waited for one of Agrippina's enemies to strike her and then swoop in to finish the job. The initial attack, when it came, was led by none other than Agrippina's former sister-in-law, Domitia. Remember that Agrippina had managed the triple threat against Domitia of stealing her husband, inheriting his vast wealth when he died, and then causing her sister's death. Suffice it to say, they didn't get on. One suspects that she had been waiting for a long time for an opportunity to get back at Agrippina, and right now, she saw her chance. She made common cause with a woman called Junia Solana, who had fallen out with the Dowager Empress after she had prevented her from marrying the man that she wanted, and then apparently overhearing Agrippina calling her a, quote, immoral woman of declining years. Together, these two women concocted a plot, whereby two of Solana's clients accused Agrippina of conspiring to replace Nero on the throne with a man called Rebellius Plautius, the great-grandson of Emperor Tiberius. They would then accuse her of planning to marry him and install herself as the power behind the throne. Then, a client of Domitius, an actor called Paris, who had the ear of Nero, would inform the emperor of the plot and ensure that his mother was suitably punished. Paris waited until the opportune moment i.e. late at night while Nero was drunk, before informing him of the quote-unquote conspiracy. As the plotters had hoped, the emperor was thoroughly convinced of the charge and ordered that his mother be summarily executed. But the Praetorian Prefect Burrus stayed his hand. He warned Nero that Agrippina, even in her weakened state, was too dangerous to move on in so rash and reckless a way. She had too many powerful friends, including many in the Praetorian Guard, who may prevent her arrest and then rise up against him. Burrus persuaded the emperor instead to let him interrogate Agrippina to try to get to the bottom of it. As one might expect, Agrippina came out fighting. She first came out with a classic burn against the childless Solana, saying that, quote, I wonder not that Solana, who has never born offspring, knows nothing of her mother's feelings. Parents, do not change their children as lightly as a shameless adulterer does her lovers. Her accusers, clients of Domitia, of course, she stated, were deeply in debt, and therefore, quote, repaying an old hag for their hire by undertaking to be informers. Finally, Domitia was dismissed as someone who'd never had Nero's best interests at heart. I should thank her for her enmity. If she were competing with me in benevolence to my Nero instead of staging this comedy... In the days when my counsellors were preparing his adoption, his proconsular power, his consulate in prospect, and the other steps to his sovereignty, she was embellishing her fishpons. Following this counterattack against her accusers, she went on to address the various charges in more detail, saying that, yes, she was popular with the troops, but she had never used that to influence them against the emperor or foment discord in the provinces nor had anyone presented good evidence that she had bribed servants or officials in the palace to do ill either. She finished off with the rather persuasive argument that of course she hadn't plotted against her son because it was against her own interest to do so, as she could have no better protection than with her son on the throne. She then demanded to be able to have an audience with Nero. Burris agreed. There she presented her arguments again, and did so in such a persuasive way that not only were all the charges dropped, but Solana was exiled for her part in the lie. Agrippina emerged from this plot chastened, but to an extent renewed in her position as a power behind the throne. She had managed to restore a few of her own men to various official postings, and managed to keep her head above water, while many other powerful men rose and fell in imperial favour. What she could not do, however, was rise to the position of prominence that she had held in the first year of Nero's reign. The trial had failed in its ambition to finish up Agrippina and send her to her death at her son's hand, but it demonstrated just how far she had fallen. She may have been exonerated, but the very fact that she had been so close to execution at the hands of her own son was a sign that she no longer was the power that she once had been. The greatest evidence for this is that Agrippina takes a complete back seat in the historical record after late 55 her face drops from the coinage. Games and celebrations are rarely conducted in her honour, and she is no longer mentioned frequently in the historical sources. Now, this does not mean that she completely disappeared from public life. It's just that her role has significantly changed, and not for the better. While before she had been a public figure, visible, loud and proud, now she was relegated to the shadows, only able to influence affairs behind the scenes. While before she had taken on those who opposed her, now she was forced to be far more conciliatory and non-confrontational. During her time as Empress and first year or so under Nero, her name crops up in relation to nigh on every significant action of the imperial government. She had her hands in every pot. Now, she more or less disappears from view. One of the reasons for this is that she had been completely driven from the palace, and was harassed by nuisance lawsuits and general rebuke. Suetonius claims that this was all at the order of Nero. Quote, He deprived her of all honour and power, took from her the guard of Roman and German soldiers, banished her from the palace and from his society, and persecuted her in every way that he could contrive, employing persons to harass her when at Rome with lawsuits, and to disturb her in her retirement from town with the most scurrilous and abusive language, following her about by land and sea. Agrippina was still, though, a figure to be reckoned with. Her name still garnered respect, and she yet had loyal followers who could protect her. And this is before we consider her own personal qualities. The fact that she had survived the accusations of Solana and Domitia cannot be seen as inevitable. She'd argued her way out, using her formidable force of will and persuasive rhetoric, along with everything else. Nero had not acquitted her after some feeling of rapprochement. He'd done it out of fear. Fear of what might happen if he completely moved against his mother. Most of all, he feared the reaction of the Praetorian Guard. Soldiers who theoretically were for his own protection, but who still looked upon her as the heir of Germanicus and their patron. This would be enough to concern a rational emperor, but for one so vain and increasingly paranoid as Nero it was enough to drive him mad with rage. Therefore, in 59, he decided that he had enough. It was time to kill his mother. Wait, what? Historians have struggled for years to work out exactly why Nero, after being content for four years to endure his mother's reduced role, decided to take such decisive and lethal action now. Part of the problem that we have is the fact that she had largely dropped off the radar for the previous four years or so. Which means that we do not know if there had been some catalyst, some slight against the Emperor or his friends. Why now? Remember, this wasn't an act of banishment, as was more typical when an Emperor wished to get rid of a member of close family. Caligula, a far more unstable man than Nero, had merely exiled his sisters, and that had been after they had been caught red-handed in a plot to have him overthrown. Our sources, which remember we we're writing many decades later, offer some explanation, but nothing really all that convincing. Suetonius talks vaguely that Agrippina's, quote, threats and violence drove Nero to such drastic action. While well, both Cassius Dio and Tacitus place the reason at the feet of the emperor's new mistress, and soon-to-be second wife, Poppea Sabina. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on her, I will discuss her in more detail in a future episode. But suffice it to say that the sources portray Popea as being a ruthlessly ambitious woman who wants to see Agrippina killed so that she may become the first woman in Rome. Moreover, Agrippina was seen as being the great protector of Nero's wife Octavia, and no doubt this was also an influence on Popea as well. The sources have her essentially chiding and shaming Nero into having his mother killed. However, There are a few issues with this portrayal. First of all, isn't it just a little bit convenient that, yet again, we have the poisonous words of an ambitious woman being seen as the reason behind someone's demise? It's a classic trope, and one that's a little too convenient for me. The second reason is that it doesn't really make all that much sense, as even with Agrippina's demise, Papaya was not able to become Empress for another three years. And finally, our sources rather undermine their own credibility by stooping to the lowest common denominator of accusations, that of incest. Cassis Dio and Suetonius claim that Nero had fallen for another mistress who was the spitting image of his mother, and that Papeia was jealous of the woman. The former writes, "'Whether this actually occurred now, "'or whether it was invented to fit their character, I'm not sure.' But I state as a fact which is omitted by all that Nero had a mistress resembling Agrippina, of whom he was especially fond because of this very resemblance. And when he toyed with the girl herself or displayed her charms to others, he would say that he was wont to have intercourse with his mother. Tacitus goes much further, stating that Agrippina would present herself, "...attractively attired to her half-intoxicated son and prepared for incest." Now, the story of the mistress who looked like Agrippina does seem to be one that has at least some truth to it, as it's hard to discount the sources when they more or less come up with the same story. But I find it hard to believe that this was a reason for Nero deciding to murder his mother. Indeed, it actually speaks to their continuing bond. It seems that mother and son were highly affectionate with each other, even in this period when they were at loggerheads and the very fact that this was enough to see them accused of incest shows that Agrippina can't have been as sidelined from the action as some sources would have us believe. But back to the accusation against Popeya. The issue is, while I don't really believe the jealous mistress narrative of the sources, the fact is that this is really the only story the sources present to us. It seems unlikely that other forces at court would have wanted her dead, Seneca and Burrus were running the empire with Nero quite happily, and the same reasons that had stayed their hands over the accusations of Solana and Domitius still applied. It will likely remain a mystery why Nero has decided to commit matricide. All we do know is that, for whatever reason, that is what he decided to do. Of course, the next thing was to work out how to do it. Now, the classic method would have been to use poison, That, of course, is what carried off Claudius, but this was ruled out as being too risky. Agrippina took great precautions against being poisoned, being far more careful than, say, Britannicus, and even should something have gotten past her tasters, she apparently kept an arsenal of antidotes on her person. Nero also couldn't find anyone to take the direct route and kill her with a sword. She was too well protected. He still feared her power and influence too much, to attempt to have her executed through a show trial, and so he was forced to consider some rather more elaborate schemes. The person who eventually came up with the solution was a freedman called Anicetus, a former tutor of Nero, who was, at present, the commander of Rome's fleet at the Misenum naval base near modern Naples. Anicetus and Agrippina apparently despised each other, though the reason for this is unclear. He was a talented engineer, and so hazarded upon a scheme to kill Agrippina without anyone having to go anywhere near her. Now, as you might imagine, the sources provide fairly lavish detail on what happened next, as it is one of the richest and craziest stories that has come down to us from the Roman world. That said, they don't entirely all match up, so I'll talk you through all three. Let's start with Suetonius. He states that Anastasia's first scheme was to weaken the supports in the ceiling above her bed in one of her residences, so that she may be killed while asleep in an apparent tragic architectural accident. Unfortunately for him, Agrippina was tipped off about this threat on her life, meaning that he had to come up with a new means of killing her through engineering. Now, the other two sources don't mention this first attempt, but all three agree broadly on what happened next. The new plan was apparently inspired by a trip to the theatre. Cassis Dio writes, One day they saw in the theatre a ship that automatically parted asunder, let out some beasts, and then came together again so as to become once more seaworthy. And they at once caused another to be built like it. Tacitus claims that Anicetus saw this as the model for the perfect crime, saying to Nero, Nothing allowed of accident so much as the sea, and should she be overtaken by shipwreck? Who would be so unfair as to impute to crime an offence committed by the winds and waves? Nero loved the idea, touched as he was with the flair for the dramatic, and so he and his freedmen put their plan into action. The plan was for it all to go down at the Festival of Minerva at Beii in the Gulf of Naples in late March. This was a seaside resort that had somewhat of a reputation for high-class debauchery, and all of the great and the good had residence there, including Agrippina, who kept a villa at Bauley. Suetonius states that, quote, Nero pretended a reconciliation and invited her in a most cordial letter to come to Bay and celebrate the feast of Minerva with him. He had given private orders to the captains of the galleys which were to attend to her, to shatter to pieces the ship in which she had come by falling foul of it, but in such a manner that might appear to be done accidentally. He prolonged the entertainment for the more convenient opportunity of executing the plot in the night, and when she would return to Bowerly, instead of the old ship which had conveyed her, he offered that which he had contrived for her destruction. He attended her to the vessel in a very cheerful mood, and even kissing her breasts as they parted. Tastus adds a little bit of dialogue in there, saying the emperor said to his mother, quote, "Strength and good health to you, mother. For you I live, and because of you I rule. Now the sources differ on exactly what happened next, so again, I'll go through them all in turn. Suetonius, unusually for him, doesn't go into details, merely stating that the plot failed, and Agrippina managed to swim to safety. Cassius Dion offers a little more colour, Stating that, quote, the sea would not endure the tragedy that was to be enacted on it, nor would it submit to be liable to the false charge of having committed the abominable deed. And so, though the ship parted asunder and Agrippina fell into the water, she did not perish. Tastus, however, put his screenwriter hat on and goes all in. He describes the night as being, quote, a night of brilliant starlight with the calm of a tranquil sea. He says that Agrippina was chatting with two of her attendants when suddenly, quote, the canopy above them, which had been heavily weighted with lead, dropped, and Creporius was crushed and killed on the spot. Agrippina and Aceronia were saved by the height of the couch sides, which, as it happened, were too solid to give way under the impact. Nor did the break up of the vessel follow, for confusion was universal and even the men accessory to the plot were impeded by the large numbers of the ignorant. Aseronia, however, incautious enough to raise the cry that she was Agrippina, and imploring for the Emperor's mother, was dispatched with oars, poles, and every nautical weapon that came to hand. Agrippina, silent, as so not generally recognised, though she received one wound in the shoulder, swam until she was met by a few fishing smacks, and so reached the Lucrine Lake, whence she was carried into her own villa. So, there's some disagreement there, with Cassius Dio claiming that the ship collapsed in on itself as planned, but that Agrippina failed to drown. Well, Tastus seems to have combined the ideas of the tampered ceiling from Suetonius with the collapsing ship plan into his story. It's also hard to see how Agrippina and Aceronia could have been saved from a collapsing ceiling by the sides of a couch. Whatever details of what actually went down... The fact is that this massively overcomplicated plan completely failed. Agrippina must have known that such a mad and massive conspiracy can only have come from the mind of her deranged son, and so it could have been in no doubt that she was still in mortal danger. Making her way back to shore, most likely in the fishing smacks described by Tacitus, she was carried in the litter by her surviving servants back to her villa, having to carefully skirt around the Imperial residence at Bay. When she got home, she was placed in warm blankets and tried to work out what she was to do next. Meanwhile, back at Bay, Nero had spent a sleepless night wondering if his plan had succeeded. When he was finally informed of its failure, he panicked. The only reason he had gone along with his harebrained scheme had been because he feared open action against his mother, now that it was all out in the open, she could counterattack with the full force of the Praetorian Guard. Not knowing what to do next, he consulted his advisers, Burrus and Seneca, who had been to that point completely unaware of the plot and were likely flabbergasted at what had gone down. Their advice was clear: the wheels that Nero had set in motion could not be arrested. He must finish the job or face rebellion from his mother. It was at this point that a message came to the palace from Agrippina. She had decided the only way that she was going to get out of this alive was to feign ignorance of the whole thing. She wrote to her son that she had been saved by the gods from a tragic accident, but that, quote, however great his alarm at his mother's danger, she begged him to defer the attention of a visit. For the moment, what she needed was rest. No one was convinced and so Nero dispatched some loyal troops under Anicetus's command to finish the job. They forced their way into her villa, finding her with only one attendant who could offer her no protection. Agrippina was surrounded, beaten to the floor with a club, and surrounded by assassins, their swords drawn. She would have the last word, though. Words that have entered into legend. Quote, smite my womb, Anicetus! smite my womb, for it is this bore Nero. Once they had done the deed and killed her, the assassins sent word back to Nero, who came to the villa to inspect the body. While the sources again differ a little on what he exactly did, the consensus view is expressed by Suetonius, who states that he, quote, hurried off to view the corpse, handled her limbs, criticising some and commending others, and that, becoming thirsty meanwhile, he took a drink. Cassius adds to the scene by stating that he said blithely, I did not know that I had so beautiful a mother. The last thing that Nero wanted to do was to make a martyr of his mother by allowing her to be buried with all the honour, pomp and ceremony that would be expected of the daughter of Germanicus, descendant of Augustus and Empress of Rome. That could not be permitted. Also, burying her now would conceal the means of her death. Therefore, the funeral rites performed the very night. She was apparently cremated on her dining couch, largely for means of expedience. Her ashes were placed in a modest tomb nearby, which again denied her the right of being buried alongside her more illustrious family members in Augustus' mausoleum. In the coming days, Nero and his advisors scrambled to head off potential rebellion from those loyal to Agrippina. The Praetorians and army at large were headed off by a healthy donative, while Seneca penned a letter with Nero's signature to the Senate. He alleged that one of her freedmen had been caught planning to murder Nero, and that she had paid the penalty. He then went on to list a litany of charges, including that, quote, she had hoped for a partnership in the Empire, for the Praetorian cohorts to swear allegiance to a woman, for the Senate and people to submit to a like ignominy. He accused her of meddling in senatorial affairs, of trying to break into the chamber, and then reminded them of the purges and repression of the Claudian era, exaggerating them of course when it suited him. She was blamed for everything, all her achievements forgotten. The sinking of the ship was portrayed merely as a coincidental accident. With these nods to their collective pocketbooks and egos, as well as not-so-subtle threats against their lives and families if anyone were to take drastic action, Nero was able to head off Rebellion. The Emperor had been afraid that killing Agrippina may result in an explosion of violence. In fact, instead, it was greeted with nothing more than a whimper. Indeed, it seems that the person most affected by Agrippina's murder was Nero himself. Suetonius states that, "...he was never afterwards able to bear the stings of his own conscience for this atrocious act. He frequently affirmed that he was haunted by his mother's ghost... And persecuted with the whips and burning torches of the Furies. And Cassius Dio adds that, quote, his own conscience was so disturbed at night that he would leap suddenly from his bed, and by day, when he merely heard the blare of trumpets sounding forth some stirring martial strain from the region where lay Agrippina's bones, he would be terror stricken. Agrippina's murder was the most dramatic act of Nero's reign to that point eclipsing even the ruthless killing of Britannicus and marked a significant turning point in his reign he had taken the decision to have her killed on his own initiative without consulting his key advisers and this foreshadowed the fact that from now on he was determined to plot his own course we'll of course see how that turned out for him and for rome in the coming weeks as we look at the lives of his many wives there was no doubt in the mind of ordinary Romans, whatever the official line, that Nero had had his mother murdered, and this is expressed with the meaning of pasquinades, essentially satirical graffiti and symbolic vandalism. For example, in Roman law, the common punishment for killing a parent was to be drowned in a sack, and so when Nero returned to Rome, a leather bag was hung from one of his statues. A statue of Agrippina was covered in rags, Making her look as if she was veiled, as if in mourning, and graffitied the inscription, I am afraid and you are not. Another statue to Nero was vandalised with Mother Slayer scrawled across the base. Nero would frequently find himself accosted in the streets or mocked unsubtly on stage by men outraged by his crime of matricide. What is interesting is that he tended to treat these protests with leniency. Perhaps this is because he truly was ashamed of what he had done. Whatever the case, the shadow of matricide would follow him for the rest of his life. Agrippina Minor's life has a very pleasing kind of symmetry to it, one that has enticed readers and researchers for centuries. She'd been born into the lap of luxury, but then grown up being persecuted for the misfortune of being on the wrong side of the warring imperial family, and eventually died almost completely alone. Indeed, all the highs and lows of her life can trace their roots to the actions of her own kin. Being the daughter of Germanicus brought with her fame, respect and title, but it also led her child to be marred by that association. She was married by her uncle, ostensibly because of her familial connections, but fear of that arguably led to her murder. And let's not forget that one of her main goals in life had been to give birth to a son in order to further the family name and making him emperor. Doing so had been her crowning achievement. But of course, it was he that had ordered her death. But all of this really forgets Agrippina's own agency and imagines her life as being akin to being a raft on a stormy sea, being helplessly blown hither and thither by the winds of fate. She had far more control over her own destiny than that. Her birth had brought considerable baggage, but she harnessed all that was positive about it to become, I would argue, the most powerful woman in Roman history, at least for a time, and managed to weather and survive the worst that it brought, outliving her parents and siblings who all fell by the wayside. She wasn't a saint, I certainly don't want to give you that impression, While many of the murders that she is accused of can be dismissed as being rather lurid hearsay, this isn't the case with all of them. She was responsible for the killing of her husband, and her actions and persecutions led to the deaths by execution or suicide of many others. She doesn't have the blood on her hands that say, Messalina has, but she certainly wasn't one to cross. But what stands out to me about Agrippina is her sheer competence. She may have made some mistakes, but in general she steadied the empire at a time when it was on shaky ground. She was a true partner in power for Emperor Claudius. And then, when she decided to, she managed a masterful piece of regime change. Killing the previous occupant and installing her own son, all the while smoothing the path so that there was little to no resistance. In terms of prestige and honour, there is no one in this period that can match her. Yet, in the end, she failed. She failed because the very thing that she had striven for, the inheritance of her son and the security and prosperity of her family, was undone within a few years of her death. Her son had killed her, and in time, through his actions, he would bring to an end the entire Julio-Claudian dynasty. Next time, we enter the home straight as we delve into the stories of the wives of Nero, as one might imagine, none of them had a particularly great time of it, as the Emperor descended more and more into egotism and self-indulgence.